his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Carol Carson. She is the outgoing executive director of the Office of State Ethics. She recently announced her retirement this summer after about 12 years on the job. Good morning to you. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with what the Office of State Ethics does in Connecticut government. You are a watchdog group. We are. We are a watchdog group, and and we administer the Code of Ethics for public officials and state employees, as well as the Code of Ethics for lobbyists. We have some jurisdiction over contractors, state contractors as well. Does the Office of State Ethics interface at all with other watchdog groups, such as the Elections Enforcement Commission, maybe FOI Commission? Occasionally, there's a little bit of crossover, but for the most part, we have separate jurisdictions. Um, Internally, we share resources, back office resources, IT, human resources, and all of our fiscal uh, resources we, we share with the three watchdogs. While the watchdogs are uh, part of the executive branch, we have always been walled off apart from them because we have jurisdiction over all of them. And so having us have our own set of resources that we share has been very effective. How important is it to maintain that independence? It's very important. In fact, um, I would tell you that there are three pillars for any watchdog agency. And the first one is independence. The second one is adequate resources. And the third one is um, enforcement authority. And we have, let's say, two out of three of those. The adequate resources is, is a big challenge for us, to be honest. And we'll talk a little more about that in a little bit. One of the things that you have a purview over is lobbyists at the state capitol. So if you're a lobbyist, you have to register with the Office of State Ethics. How does that work? If you are taking action to influence government or solicit others to take action to influence government action, whether it is in the legislative branch or the administrative branch, and you spend or receive in the course of doing that uh, $3,000 or more, you are required to register as a lobbyist. Once you register you then are required to file regular reports monthly while the legislature is in session and quarterly throughout the entire year. Is it always clear-cut whether or not someone is a lobbyist or not? Usually. It's usually a dollar figure. It's that $3,000. People sometimes get close to the $3,000. And they're not sure what brings them over because we look at a number of the things that they spent money on. Does it ever come up where 
someone doesn't know they have to register. Say they're up at the Capitol, they're talking to lawmakers, maybe officials from executive branch agencies, and they happen to expend a little money, and all of a sudden they get close to that $3,000 mark and they didn't know they had to register. Sure, it happens all the time, particularly during the session. Uh, and and, and the, the second half of the session really uh, is when we start to see people spending money on uh, ads in the media, um, or we see someone that's up in the Capitol a lot. Um, and it's not unusual for us to start to monitor when we see people working on some bill that's that's a very controversial bill, and for us to actually reach out to them and let them know what the rules are and that they will have to register if they exceed that $3,000. What sort of penalties are there if they don't? For failure to register, the penalty is $10,000 per violation. So that's significant. I think so. Now, as you work your way through the legislative session, things often pop up the last minute very quickly. So I'm guessing like the last week, what we just went through can be a challenge sometimes. We see lobbyists register throughout the year because you never know when some issue isn't going to pop up that someone's going to decide that they need to try to influence the way government is going to take some actions. So it's not unusual for us to see, even today, someone come into our office and say, I have to register because something has popped up and that person knows they're going to be expending some money and they'll register. Once you register, you're registered for the entire legislative biennium unless you as a a lobbyist um, terminate your registration. Now, with lobbyist registration, are there things you can do outside of the session that you can't do during the session? There are some um, campaign finance restrictions out in session that that are a little bit different outside of session. Now, you talk about how watchdogs have overlapping jurisdiction. Mm. This is an instance where probably State Elections Enforcement Commission uh, would be looking at that more than we would. You also have purview over the disclosures of state lawmakers and other officials, correct? That's correct. There are about 2,500 uh, elected state officials, as well as high-ranking state employees, who must each year file what's called a statement of financial interests. They are due May 1st, and they include such things as your sources of income, uh, you have to report any securities that you own uh, from that are valued at $5,000 or more, property. Um, it's a pretty extensive snapshot of your financial holdings, though it doesn't include dollar amounts, just what you have, not how much of it you have. Your office is also often asked for opinions, correct, from state employees who want to make sure that they don't run afoul of ethics, regulations, and laws. That's true. That's true. Most public officials are like everybody in the state of Connecticut. They get up every day, they go to work, and they try to do the best job that they can. And for them, our role is to provide education, advice, and guidance. And we hear from over a thousand people each year that are seeking advice about a particular situation that they find themselves in. And we will provide them with that advice uh, to help them to 
be on the right side of the law. We also do a lot of education. Uh, we go out to lots of uh, agencies. We also have online education. We just completed training all uh of the legislators. Every four years, we're required to sit down with them and do a retraining for legislators. We also retrain each incoming freshman legislator, uh, whether it's the four years or, or the, the, the two years in between. I know a lot of cities and towns have municipal ethics boards. Is there any interface there? Not yet. And the reason I say not yet is there's actually a, a bill that will require every municipality to have a municipal ethics code. And uh, that language right now, as it exists, it hasn't passed yet. And there's still a few days left in the session, so it may. Um, but that language would re- would allow us to work with municipalities and or with the organizations that support municipal municipalities, such as the Council of Small Towns or Connecticut Conference of Municipalities, to help them with the training segment of it. And I will say we are recording this interview on Monday. As this airs, the legislative session ended on Wednesday at midnight. Well, hopefully you, we people will be able to find out then that Indeed, there is a requirement that every municipality have an ethics code for their municipality. Right now, they all don't. Going back to the issues you're asked for opinions on, are there any common themes that keep coming up for those requests? So what's interesting for us is that it, it, it has ebbs and flows, for example, between, say, mid November and the end of the year, we'll have a lot of gifts questions. This early this year, with the changing of the administration, uh, the Governor Malloy left and Governor Lamont came in, which meant a whole bunch of other people also left state government and came in. We had a lot of revolving door questions. Come April, we had a lot of questions about the statements of financial interest disclosures that you and I already talked about. So it 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 ebbs and flows depending on what else is going on. We're hearing from a lot of lobbyists you know, in the past month or so, because as they're preparing their reports and spending money, they want to make sure they prepare their reports and do so correctly. So from a high-level view, what are the rules when it comes to gifts? I mean, if I'm a an elected official, can a lobbyist take me out to lunch or give me a gift? The general rule for, for gifts between lobbyists, state, state officials, and public employees is that you can't accept anything greater than $10. However, if you look at the statute, it has one line that says, thou shalt not accept any gifts greater than $10, and 19 exceptions. The exceptions uh, address a variety of issues. For example, um, I, uh, if I'm a legislator and a lobbyist wants to take me to lunch to talk about whatever I am interested in, there is a $50 uh, prohibition, so you can go up to fifty dollars, and that would be over the that would be over the course of a calendar year. So you've been at the office of state ethics since two thousand seven. How has your work changed over the years? So when I came to Connecticut, uh, the office of state ethics was a new agency. It was less than two years old. I became the second executive director, and when I got here. Somebody told me that it was still an agency that was fixing to start getting ready to do something. 
My take right away was, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. We're going to do. We're not going to be getting ready. We're going to do. So we had to put a lot of things in place. Um, and, and we've done that. You know, we're very responsive. People call us. They get advice very quickly. You know, we, we also hear from people that are filing complaints with us, which we haven't talked about yet. And uh, we do a lot of education. We have upgraded all of our technology so that it, um, our website is very user-friendly. It has lots and lots of information. Filers primarily file online for anything that they have to file with us. For example, there are instances where someone has to file a disclosure with us, and you can do that online. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Carol Carson. She is executive director of the Office of State Ethics. She recently announced her retirement as of August 1st. Talk some more about the complaints process. Who would lodge a complaint and what are the reasons to file a complaint? So anyone can lodge a complaint. Um, and, and the complaint has to – generally we see complaints alleging that someone has – some public official, some state employee has violated the law receiving a, a gift that they uh, weren't supposed to receive – uh, revolving door issues, someone has left government and gotten a job that they, they shouldn't have been able to get because they had pre- previous dealings with that person while they were still in state government. Use of position, someone is using their position for their private business. We've had cases involving that. Conflicts of interest, where you're taking public action and it's affecting you or your family or your business, in, in, sometimes in a positive or a negative way. And I would assume that in some cases, the targets of these complaints don't even know they're necessarily doing something wrong. That's less and less the case. I think one of the things that we have um, done uh, really well is our, our ability to reach out to agencies. Every state agency has either an edge, uh, has some sort of liaison that liaisons with us. We send them, for example, a monthly uh, newsletter that highlights what the issues are. We remind them around November 1st about gifts rules, because as I said earlier, that's the time when we hear a lot of gifts questions. So, so, and we've done a lot of education. So essentially, you should know better if you, you run afoul of the ethics rules and regs and laws. For the, for the straightforward ones, there are some that, that can be a little tricky and um, people, people on the whole try to get things right. And so when you tell them they're getting something wrong, they're, they're always a little surprised. How does it work with uh, quasi-public agencies, like, you know, like agencies like the MDC? Do you have any purview there? We have jurisdiction over a number of quasi-public agencies that, that are state quasi-public agencies, and they're, they're listed in the statute. For example, we have jurisdiction over the lottery, um, Chesla. So we're, There's we're a list people of are them. state employees, essentially. They are for the purposes of the Code of Ethics, mm-hmm. but not necessarily for other uh, laws that would otherwise apply to state employees. 2007, uh, sorry, 2011 saw watchdog agencies combined and your staff cut by 38 percent. 
Do you think that was simply budget cutting or were there other forces at play there? Certainly budget cutting and consolidating agencies came into play. Um, I think there was probably a little bit of seeking to control these agencies that are outside of the realm of the executive branch. How did you handle those cuts? With difficulty. What I have to say is that the, the employees at the Office of State Ethics, and a number of them have been there for uh, uh, through this whole period, longer than I've been there here, in fact, um, are just the, the kind of state employees that, that the people in Connecticut should be proud of. They're committed. They work hard. They do their job. Now, five years later, some greater independence was restored. How big a fight was that? It was an ongoing effort by the watchdog agencies to um, convince the legislature and the administration that it just didn't make sense for us to be within an agency that was controlled by the governor's office. It seems, at least with FOI law, you see a slow kind of chipping away you know, they add an exception here, add an exception there over the years to the freedom of information law. Do you see that also with ethics laws? I don't think so. I think that in in many ways, what, what you don't see is it, it, what's more challenging is for us to make the laws stronger. We have seen in recent years, years uh, since we regained our independence and interest in in strengthening the laws in in some ways. How large does the scandal of 2004 that saw a governor resign in disgrace still loom over the Office of State Ethics? I mean, do you still think back to, you know, those days and how things have changed? Well, I I didn't live in Connecticut or work in Connecticut Mm -hmm. then, but what, what I'm told from people is that it it is very, very different. Whenever there is a scandal, and I've worked in government ethics, I worked in Massachusetts before this, so for a total of 27 years, whenever there's a scandal, it causes everybody to step back and rethink what they're doing. In Connecticut, they did a great job of that because they decided that they did need more enforcement, they did need stronger rules, and they enacted all that starting in 2005. A certain amount of people in the public still think that, you know, they call Connecticut Corrupticate. Have we earned that name? Have we been able to shed that? How are we doing ethics-wise, would you say? I think we're, we're doing okay. I think that as long as there are humans in government, somebody will try to get away with something. Um, However, I think that uh, people have, post uh, the 2004 scandal, uh, become more aware of the issues and how they can play out. I think that and the combination of stronger rules have made a difference. From our point of view, the the way that the Office of State Ethics views this is through the lens of um, changing culture. And uh, our education programs have been have worked hard at um, at changing culture. So, so if you look at our program, we provide advice, we do enforcement, and we provide education and transparency. And those all work together holistically. 
So, for example, there have been instances where we've had a couple of enforcement actions at a particular state agency. The agency has reached out to us. We've reached out to the agency. We've done a whole bunch of education. We have sometimes consulted with the agency to create new internal policies and procedures. And the end result of that has been that the culture within the agency, the ethical culture, is new and improved. And that can't help but make a difference. Would you rather hear from an agency than have to reach out to them after seeing something that is potentially against the rules? Not only would we rather hear from them so that we can figure out how to address issues, the statute um, since the 2004 scandal requires the heads of agencies, if they become aware of potential violations within their agencies, to report them to us. It's It's a mandate. Where is there room for improvement in the ethics laws in Connecticut? Um, there, there, each year we have proposed a number of uh, legislative uh, improvements. Uh, we have a number of those that are still in play as we speak today. And by the time this is aired, we'll know whether they moved forward or not. Um Generally, we we want to make sure that the laws are clear and that our process is both transparent and fair. And backing up a bit, how big is your office? How big is your staff? Well, when I walked in the door almost 12 years ago, I had um, a staff of 21 and a budget of $2.4 million dollars. I now have two vacancies, but a total staff of 14. There's only 12 of us right now. We're in the process of filling those positions. And uh, the budget for the next upcoming fiscal year is $1.5 million. So it's, that's significantly different. Um, I would love to see more resources devoted to us so that we could do more education, more outreach, more advice, and to continue to change the culture so that fewer and fewer people in Connecticut would still think the way you suggest that they do, that, pe- that, that we're corrupting it. I don't think we are. How much has technology helped in doing your work? I mean, you, you, that's a, a drastic cut in staff you talked about. Has technology helped with any of that in making up the difference? Oh, absolutely. Um, when when I arrived, only about seventy, less than seventy five percent of filers who filed those financial disclosure statements filed them online, which meant we touched paper all the time, and that's uh, personnel intensive. Uh, we are up to ninety nine percent filing online, 99 percent filing online. So when we were able to do things like that. Um, we're able to be much more efficient. Now, I know the, the job is in the process of being posted, but do you have any advice for your, your successor? Um, so my advice, I guess, would be to continue to work with the board. The Citizens Ethics Advisory Board is a nine-member board. Three members are appointed by the governor, three by leadership on both sides of the aisle in the House, and another three in the Senate. Um this these are it's they this board lives up to its name it's people from throughout um the state from a number of backgrounds that care about government getting it right 
and government protecting government's interests. So whoever replaces me is going to have to work with them, as well as the staff. Certainly the, the efforts to get more resources so that whoever replaces me can do the job that should be done is going to be a, a number one priority. And that's a constant battle for resources, really, at every, every um, facet of state government, isn't it? That's true. She is Carol Carson, outgoing executive director of the Office of State Ethics. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.